Well, good morning. Um, you know, I asked the Holy Spirit to work in my heart. In preaching, not only what is a difficult passage, and he did that. Um, as we were, before we got together to sing, I went over to talk to my brother just recently. I went through a divorce. And just the brokenness. I can't even. I can't even begin to feel his pain. And, he, and yet he's sitting there alone. And to my other brothers, I want say, go get him, sit with him, and bring him over to sit with you right now. And you, you know who he is. Don't make him sit there by himself. Someone... So it is a difficult passage to preach. <laughs> because it's a rebuke to the Pharisees. So I, I get to share with you Christ as he rebukes the Pharisees. And I want to communicate that clearly. I don't want to soften it. It, it is hard. Christ's rebuke of his Pharisees, we should hear. And we should not try in any way to soften what Christ has to say to them. But we should recognize that we are a broken people. We experience that brokenness, and it hurts. But Christ is greater than all that, and he's made every provision for us. And so if you're here, and you've experienced that pain, and I'll tell you what, there is no one here that hasn't experienced it. Some of us more firsthand in our own lives. But there isn't anyone here who has not experienced that pain in their immediate family or, or their next immediate family. No one. And so we all have filters. We all come to God's Word and we all have our experiences. But we need to see God's Word as it's proclaimed. And as Brian has said, some, there's some truths I don't like, but God says it and that settles it. That's all there is I need to know.
So turn with me in your Bibles. And you know it's an encouragement to me when I do preach when you open a Bible um, to Luke chapter 16. Our verses are 14 through 18. And as I've said, the, the words of Christ are a rebuke. And these words come between um, two parables. The parable of the unjust steward that Pat preached last week, and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that Levi is going to bring to us next week. And you know, as you read these, as you read this, these, these, these few verses sandwiched in between these two parables, you think, man, what's, you know, it's just like it dropped out of nowhere. I mean, how does this relate to what Luke is communicating, what Christ is saying in his parables? But that's the benefit of a, of, a, of a teaching verse by verse through the Bible. Um, we see it in its context. So that helps give us better understanding of God's Word. And at the same, at the same benefit, the, be, or the other benefit is we don't get to skip difficult passages like this. It would be very easy to just skip right over it. I could preach 14 through 17 and I, could, I'll prob I would, could probably go over on time preaching 14 through 17. We could skip 18 and go right into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But we are not going to do that. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And you know what's the reproof and the correction that we don't like? That's the part of it we don't like. Well, we could just go with the teaching and the training. It's just the reproof that's very difficult for us. But if you're a parent, you know that that's necessary. Now, Kim and I have four kids, 16 grandchildren. And now we get to watch our children rebuking and reproving and teaching and training children. And what a privilege it is to watch them do that in a biblical way. Some of our children, our two oldest ones, think that Carly and Kinsley never were disciplined. Never got a spanking, never had a, never. But what can I say? The wise man learns by instruction. The knight has to learn everything the hard way. I think they saw that reproof when they were younger. They saw that correction or like, not going there. That or they just got better at knowing how to avoid it. And I think there was a lot of that Carly. She's the master of that. So we said this. If you're visiting with us or live stream, we're in the book of Luke. Luke, um, Luke states his purpose. Um, he says in chapter 1, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that purpose statement, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Luke's intent is to strengthen our faith. The Christian faith is an informed faith. It's not a blind faith. Our faith is one that has substance. It's in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's substantiated by the eyewitnesses and the expert witnesses. Luke is the expert witness. He's the one that interviewed all the eyewitnesses and has brought us both the gospel and the gospel of Luke. And he wrote Acts, Acts of the Apostles, the church, history of the church. And so 
The intent is to strengthen our faith, and that's what we want to do. Jesus begins his ministry teaching in the synagogues. And the first place he went was to the synagogue in his hometown, and he was soundly rejected. They were trying to throw him off a cliff. His proclamation was that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament of the Scripture. And so Christ moves from Sabbath day to Sabbath day. He moves from synagogue to synagogue, teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. Luke 4, 42. And when it was day, he departed, that is Jesus, and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the others, to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. That's the purpose for which Christ came, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he validated that in his exercise of his authority over nature, over sickness, over demonic power, and even over death as he raised the dead. The narrative builds in what becomes a clear focus of the conflict of two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of man with all its glitz and its glory. It's a kingdom where God has been removed and man sits on his own throne. That is the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of God, a kingdom where man lives in complete submission to the one true living God, worships God and proclaims His glory. A return to the purpose for which we were made, right? That's why God created us. And that is a God-centered kingdom. And there's a collision of these two kingdoms. We see it early in Luke 4. In the temptation of Christ and the devil took him, that is Christ, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Does that sound familiar? Familiar ring from last Sunday's message? You cannot serve two masters. Him only shall you serve. Just a review of Pat's message last week as we, as we looked at the parable of the unjust steward. Here was Pat's main point. No servant... Oh, I'm so, excuse me, I was reading the text. Uh, Jesus wants us to realize, this was Pat's main point, Jesus wants to, us to realize that we are His, that is God's servants, His stewards, and our responsibility with His money and wealth is not to be shrewd or deceiving or conniving, but to be faithful in using it for the kingdom of God. You know, I, in my own personal notes, I wrote down two things. The heart devoted to self, that is the kingdom of man, unjustly abuses God's stewardship of material wealth for selfish preservation and gain. Is that not what the unjust steward did? I mean, what a plan. He saw a situation, he's about to be fired, and he rationalizes, he justifies in his own mind this conniving scheme that he's going to discount the debt of his master's debtors and shift the obligation from, their, from his master... To him, to the unjust steward, so that later on in life, they'll be obligated to him. What a brilliant scheme. But that it was a scheme. It was evil. 
And that's what they did. And the Pharisees were guilty of the same thing. They unjustly used the Word of God and the the Word that God had entrusted to them and all that God had entrusted them for their own monetary gain and their own glory. And then the second second observation I made that I wrote down from last week's message, and this is all by way of introduction. (laughs) Sorry for the... Um, lengthy introduction, but it, but it relates. It ties into what we're going to be talking about. The heart devoted to the kingdom of God is faithful in the stewardship of the material wealth for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. That was Pat's point. It's the faithful. And Pat made two really made two really important observations that I wrote down. And I want to remind you of. He said this: the circumstances do not determine faithfulness. Circumstances do not determine faithfulness. Character determines faithfulness. And so that brings us to our text this morning in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Will you bow with me? Pray for me. I need your prayers. And let's just pray that God will bless our time together. Father, our goal this morning is to proclaim the excellence of your name. May our interpretation of your word be one that magnifies you and not ourselves. We ask that your Holy Spirit give us clarity so that we might live in a way that makes much of you and little of us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke, Chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he, that is Christ, said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John sets then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery adultery. May God bless the reading of his word. Here's the main point. And hear this. And I think you can see this. As we look at this text, you'll you'll see this weaved throughout this entire text here. A sinful heart, a sinful heart declares itself righteous. Do you see that? The hypocritical heart, the sinful heart, declares itself righteous through the willful corruption of God's Word and the willful disobedience to God's Word. When presented with the truth of God's Word, the sinful heart will always follow the same path. It seeks to declare itself righteous before men through the willful corruption or misapplication of God's word. Now that comes from the rebuke Christ is giving to his disciples. 
But here's, here's the counter principle to that, okay? Here, I want you to hear this just as well, because this is how I want to close. So if, I'm, if I lose some of you between now and when we close, I don't, I don't want you to miss this. A regenerate heart is declared righteous. It doesn't declare itself righteous. It's declared righteous only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it finds expression in joyful obedience to the unchanging Word of God. Get that? The regenerate heart is declared righteous only through the atoning work of Christ Jesus on the cross. And it finds its expression in a joyful obedience to the unchanging Word of God. Here's the outline. Brief outline. There were some outlines on the back. Um, if you didn't get it, let me just, if you're taking notes, you can just, three points and an illustration, okay? Three points and an illustration. First point, point one is going to be the condition of the heart. The self-righteous heart claims to be, claims to be lovers of God, but is lovers of money, lovers of this earth, the battle of two kingdoms. It's point two. Point two is the outward expression of that heart. It's a self-righteous heart. It exalts that which is temporary in complete disregard for that which is eternal. Point three is the method, okay? The method. The method of, of, that, uh, the method of that heart. It's a rejection and a corruption of God's word. Jesus said, you justify yourselves before men. And then the illustration, the difficult part, the elephant in the room both then and now. The Pharisees, Christ, the, the Pharisees accommodated the self-righteous heart of men by misinterpreting and misapplying God's word. They redefined marriage. And then they declared divorce and remarriage to be just, to be right before the courtroom of man. And that they did. And Jesus rebukes them for that. And so often in all of the parables, so many of the parables that Jesus is telling, he, he, he constantly is exposing, opening up the heart of the Pharisees. Luke tells us, he says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. What are all these things? Well, we have, these, we have this parable that preceded us. Um, that we looked at last week, but as, as has been taught by, the, by other members of the Pritch team, so many of the parables are pointed at the Pharisees, and they knew it, and they got it. And all of these things they heard, and, and they heard them, and they ridiculed Christ. The ridicule here is a word, is in a, is in a, a ridicule in an arrogant way. Nose lifted up. They ridiculed Christ. Who is this uneducated man from nowhere walking around? with this following. They ridiculed him. And they were lovers of money. Notice this. It's not possessors of money that he says. It's lovers of money. The issue is not what you possess. It's what possesses you. Is that not what we heard last week? It's not what you possess. It's what possesses you. You could be sitting here and say, man, I have nothing materially what could this pass? How could this possibly apply to me? It's not about your circumstances. It's not about what you have. It's what has you. It's where your heart is. So here's the main point of verse 14. It's simple. 
Man's problem is a heart problem. In his fallen nature, man is a God-hater and a self-lover. Man's only affection is to satisfy the lust of his own heart for the glory of self. That's it. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I'm either motivated by a love for the things of this world, or I'm motivated by a love for God, expressed in my submission and obedience to God's word and my love for fellow man. That's the kingdom of God. Matthew 23, 5 uh, through 9. These are Christ's words. They do all Jesus describing the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and they and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called teacher by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. The prideful heart of man is constantly looking for the validation and the exaltation of himself. That is the heart, the depraved heart of the sinner. And how do they respond to Christ? Well, self-righteous indignation. They, re- they ridiculed Christ. Not, not anything you should expect to be treated differently if you're a follower of Christ. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. John 15, verses 8. Uh, Verses 18 and 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Christ said, they will also persecute you. You know, light always exposes and dispels darkness. That's the way light works, right? When light enters a room, darkness must flee. And like thunder, bang, like thunder in a lightning storm, darkness leaves in a rage. It always does. Expect to be ridiculed and expect it to be public. Christ was publicly ridiculed. Verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Exalted. That which is, ex- ex- we know the meaning of that word. It's that which has, we give exceptional value to. Other translations use the word highly esteemed, highly admired, prized today. We might today say Facebook worthy. Right? Abomination, repugnant, detestable, abhorrent. Other translators use the word, use those same words, detestable, revolting. It's putrid. That which sets off your gag reflex. That's what God thinks of the things that we exalt before men. It makes him sick. 
And so point two, the outward expression. A self-righteous heart makes a public rationalization and justification of sin. To declare itself righteous in the courtroom, not of God, but of man. Self-righteousness that sickens God. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10? We went through that several, several weeks ago. And behold, a a lawyer stood stood up to put him to the test, to put Christ to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And he said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, the lawyer answered, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said to him, Wow, you have answered correctly. Do this and you, and you will live. But he, but he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? The conversation with Jesus really was, he was trying to justify himself. We see that constantly as the Pharisees come to Jesus and they try to trap him, looking to justify themselves before men. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Again, he says, they do their deeds to be seen by men. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see that? They do what can be seen by men. They tithe the mint, the dill, the cumin, but they neglect the things that can't be seen that God can see, the matters, the matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, Jesus said. Without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear Beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Outwardly, outwardly, the Pharisees declared themselves righteous before men, but Christ knew their heart. And he says it's an abomination. God. Verses 16 and 17 of our passage here. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The reference to the law and the prophets was a text, the revelation that they had of God in the Old Testament Scripture. They had that. And now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to them by God Himself, by Jesus. This is the law and prophets you had until John, until John the Baptist, right? John had one foot in the Old Testament, one foot in the New Testament. 
And now the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed to them. But everyone, he says, is forcing his way into it. You know, we go back to the temptation of Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. Here's my point. Point three. Let's write this down and then we'll go back to here. Here's point three. The me- is the method. The hypocrite, the hypocrite corrupts the word of God, twisting it, adding to it, or truncating it in an effort to enter the kingdom of God on his own self-righteous terms. Okay, let me say that again. This is point three. The hypocrite corrupts the word of God in an effort to enter the kingdom of God on his own self-righteous terms. If we go back to the temptation of Christ in Luke chapter 4, we see two things. Satan misused Scripture, misquoted Scripture in the temptation of Christ. The third temptation, we see that. We also see Satan offering the kingdom, the kingdoms of this world on terms other than that which was established by God the Father, which for Christ was the cross. Those were the terms. And Satan offered him terms other than that. But God's word is sufficient. God's word is unchanging. And God's word is eternal. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And God's word is unchanging. And I know if you're, if you're, if, if you're a regular attend Community Bible Church, you know that we put our full confidence in the inspiration of the Scripture of God's Word. His Word is unchanging. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is giving instructions to Israel before crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land under the commands of Joshua. And here's what he says, And, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you. And do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. Underline this. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. Don't add to them. Don't take from it. That's in Deuteronomy. Now skip all the way to Revelation. John writes this. He says in Revelation 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Isaiah 40 says this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. God has revealed himself through his unchanging word. And that revelation is made complete in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says you have, and and Christ is to to rebukes the Pharisees saying, you have the word and you have the revelation that God is standing right before them. What could be more clear? And he accuses them of trying to force their way into the kingdom on their own terms. He says, and everyone forces his way into it. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Christ says, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in the people's faces. 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. The self-righteousness of man will never satisfy the just and holy requirements of God. You know that? There is nothing, there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves that makes us righteous. We offer nothing. And the misinterpretation, the misapplication of God's word will accomplish nothing before the God who knows the heart and intent of every man. So now we come to the illustration. The elephant in the room. And you know, you know why I think Christ picked this illustration? Because it was every bit as real then as it is today. Hear me, hear me, hear me. The enemy of your soul is also the enemy of your marriage. We have been made in the image of God. Satan hates that. And God created marriage in the garden to reflect his image. Satan hates that. He hates it. And so the enemy of your soul is the enemy of your marriage. Be on guard. Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now Luke doesn't expound on that. But if you want to see that played out, that dialogue between Christ and the Pharisees and what that looks like, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. For any cause. All right, time out. Don't look ahead. Don't look ahead. I want to ask you to do something unique here. I want you to jump down to verse 10. Because before we read what stands between verse 10 and what I just read is the conclusion of the disciples. And can I suggest something to you? That as we read God's Word and as we interpret God's Word, we, in the, when we look at this, we should not come up with a different interpretation than what the disciples came up with. Okay, If somebody brings you this passage to justify divorce and remarriage, you ought to go, no way, 
That's not what the disciples took away, which you're asking me to take away. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Do you hear that? It wasn't like, oh, okay, well, that seems reasonable. That's fair. I got that. Yeah, I can make that work in my, in, in my circumstances. I, I, I got that. The disciples said, you'd be better off. We'd be, if, if that's the case, whatever Jesus says, if that's the case before God, it'd probably be better if we didn't get married. Now, let me say this to our young people. You need to take marriage seriously. Don't enter into marriage willy-nilly. Marriage is a grand thing. It's created by God. And it's for His glory. But listen to the disciples. They get it. It's hard. We live in a fallen world. We're broken people. And the design is to glorify God, not glorify man. It's work. It's hard. And the disciples say, well, if that's the case, it'd be better not to get married. Jesus said, well, that might work for some people. But he didn't correct them. He didn't say, no, you misunderstood. He did not correct them. That was their conclusion. That should be the conclusion. You know, we talk about hermeneutics. We talk about historical, cultural, and contextual analysis. We go through all, we you know, do all this Bible study. We talk about the lexical and, and uh, syntactical analysis. So we do that. These guys were standing right in front of Christ when he said this. There was no time distance. They didn't have to worry about the historical context. They didn't have to worry about cultural context. They were standing right in front of them. They, had this, they were part of the same culture. They didn't have to worry about lexical and syntactical analysis. There was no language barrier. They weren't trying to in, in, translate one language to another. They didn't have the, the challenges that we face today. They were standing right in front of them, and that was their conclusion. So we should not conclude anything differently than what the disciples concluded. So now let's go back up. The question from the Pharisees is this. Is it lawful to divorce one's, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now let me say this. The Pharisees came up to him testing him. They are not looking for truth. They're looking to trap him. Their heart is not, hey, we want to know what pleases God and brings glory to God. What do they want to do? Justify themselves and what they were and the certificates that they were writing for the people and probably the money they were getting from that. Their heart was not a heart that wanted to know the truth. They were there to test him. And they asked him a, a simple question. Let me say this. This was a question that Jesus did not misunderstand. They asked him the simple question: Is it lawful for to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now that's that's, that's good argument technique, right? Take the most extreme circumstance. Take the most extreme case. And then once we can determine that it's okay there, well, then it's a matter of a sliding line before we can justify anything. All I got to do is get you to say, yeah, it's okay in one circumstance, one situation, and then we can go all the way. We can justify everything. And they knew that. Same way, with the, same way in the debate of abortion, right? All we got to do is find one case that surely this is right. Surely it's right to abort the life of a, of a baby. 
And then, and, and, then, and then it's just a sliding scale into where our justification goes. It's the same when we're aborting a marriage. All we need is one case, and that's all they're looking for. Let's just, let's, just, let's just get Jesus to justify one thing. And this is what Jesus says. He says to the Pharisees, Have you not read? Have you not read? These guys had to memorize the Torah. <laughs> it's almost kind of like tongue-in-cheek. It's like, well, don't you know? Haven't you read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore, conclusion, there's the conclusion. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Period. Answer. That's the answer to the question. Now, the Pharisees have a follow-up question. But did Jesus misunderstand the question? I mean, I mean, it's like, well, wait a minute, Jesus. Did you not hear the question? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? Jesus, they're, they're trying to trap him in the Mosaic law. By the way, we're not under the Mosaic law. That's why Luke is the only writer in the gospel that includes this exception clause because it is a technicality in the law. We're not under the law. But Matthew's audience is to a Jewish audience, and, he, and Jesus will address this technicality. But he does answer the question, and he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The two become one. Where's my, where, I, I, I gotta have an example. I gotta, where, where's, where? Okay, James, take James. James Wolf over here. James, wave your hand, James. Here we are. Abby, I was gonna have him stand up, but you all know James and Abby. Um, Elena, stand up. Come on, Elena, you can do this. Stand up. You wanna know what you take one and one and make it one? Thank you, Abby, you can sit down. It's almost as if you took the DNA of one person, the DNA of another person, and made it one DNA, right? There's our, God has given us the illustration of one and one equals one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, now here's the day. Now the Pharisees are speaking. Who are the Pharisees? They're the ones that justify themselves before men. They said to him, oh, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, this is we're gonna we're gonna have to go we're gonna have to spend just two two three minutes looking at the Old Testament commits ad, commits adultery. So now the question at this point, I would propose to you that God answers their question, Je Jesus answers their question about 
divorce? He says, no. But he doesn't just say no. He gives them a reason. He says, because God takes a man and a woman and he makes them one. One. That's the answer to the question. Now they want Jesus. Now they want to trap him in the law, in the Mosaic law. And he's going to go there with them. He's going to correct them because they misinterpreted that law. And they applied it then throughout the entire, throughout, for anybody who wanted to get a divorce in their time, just like it is in our time, right? And so we're going we're gonna to need to, I, I don't know if I'm going to have you turn here. We're going to need to look at Deuteronomy 22 and 24. Make a note of this. Just make a note of this because we, we don't have time. But in Deuteronomy um, 22 and 24, well, let me, okay, let me back up and say this. In the, in the, in the Old Testament, um, for the Hebrews, when there was a marriage, when a couple was betrothed, we call it engaged, okay? And we don't take our engagements as seriously as they did. They were actually referred to as husband and wife during the betrothal period. That's how serious it was. And it's hard to imagine a situation like this. But in Matthew 22, it begins, if a man takes a wife, and then, and then in 24, it also starts out with the same phrase, when a, when a man takes a wife. So it's talking about the same period, and you're wondering, well, what, a, what period is this? It's this period, it's this betrothal period, when a man takes a wife. And I'm not going to read it to you. You can go back and read it. But look, go back and look at the law. That the, This is where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. In the law... If, if a man, um, you have this betrothal period, and then you have this wedding feast, right? It lasts for days. Now, having paid for three weddings, I'm glad, I, I'm glad ours didn't last for days. But it lasted for days. And then, guess where the honeymoon was? It was right there. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, then there was this, then the couple, they didn't just hop in a car and go to a far place like, um, the Caribbean or what have you, but they were there and the marriage was consummated there. And the festivities probably continued on and, um, and wound down and we have this and new husband and wife and, and, and they go and they settle in their, in their home. Well, Deuteronomy 22 expresses an exception where if the man comes out of that and says she's not a virgin, now, I, again, I can't imagine the situation, but the law, uh, then there were two things that could happen in 22, in Deuteronomy 22. Either there was, the first one it describes that there's no, that, that evidence is brought that says this guy is a liar. That's not right. He, he, is, he, is, he is defaming a virgin of Israel, and, and, and he's lying. And there's proof for that. Here's what happens. You know what his penalty is? He's fined a hundred shekels, and they're married for life. Can you imagine starting a marriage like that? I can't. I cannot imagine. I mean, it's to me, it's just unfair comes to mind, okay? That's the law. That was the law. That, you know what? You know why we think that's why we would go look at that and go, oh, that's unfair? Because God takes marriage a whole lot more seriously than we do. That's why. But that was the law. Now, if there was proof that his claim was correct, if there was proof that she was not, that she was not pure, and there was proof, there had to be proof, then you know what happened? They took her to her father's 
house to his front steps and they stoned her. Does that seem fair to you? Again, we just don't take marriage that seriously. We don't, we don't see it like God sees it. But they stoned her for adultery. Then, in Deuteronomy 24, it begins by reading, when a man takes a wife and he makes a claim of indecency against her. He, there's not something that can be proven one way or the other. He just makes this claim against her that she is, there's some sexual indecency in her. All right? He makes this claim. Then the law allowed for him, for her, to receive a certificate of divorce so that he could never come back and claim her as his wife. So she was given her certificate of divorce. That was the, that was the law. You can go back and look at it. That was the point at which the, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. And he clarifies it for them. He says, yes, that's true. That's true. There is that. He said, because right, first time he's answering the question, is it, is it lawful, is, is it lawful for, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answers that question. Now there's a question about the Mosaic law. Now that, that didn't work for him. So now they're going to go try to trap him on, Mosa- on the Mosaic law. And he, and he says... And he says, yeah, that's allowed because of, the, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, because this was happening, they were allowing divorce on through the entire marriage, the, the period of being married. He says, except for sexual immorality, and, he goes, and he's referring to the law, to this period in the betrothal period during the law, except for that, and marries another, commits adultery. Here's my point in all of that. The Pharisees could not help themselves but justify... The, the Pharisees could not help but do... Thank you. My mind was... I, the Pharisees could not help but do but what Christ had accused them of doing... Justifying themselves before men. He said, justify yourselves before men. And they tried to use the specific provisions, the Mosaic law, to do it. And let me tell you what. The disciples understood clearly what Jesus was saying to them. Now, Jesus took the elephant in the room, right? Let me say this to you and to me. This applies to all sin. Just because Jesus took this example doesn't mean this doesn't apply to every sin in our lives. So let me ask you this. Here's a question, application question. What sin in my life do I nurture by twisting Scripture in an effort to justify that sin, both in my own mind and before other men? Maybe it's anger. Maybe, you have an, maybe you're angry with somebody, and instead of dealing with it, you just justify it in your mind. And if somebody asks you about it, you justify it before a man. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's sexual morality. Maybe it's some form of sexual immorality. You don't want to deal with that sin? 
The only thing left to do if you're not willing to deal with the sin is to justify it. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's bitterness or idolatry. It could be any of a number of things. Sins that we so dearly hold on to that we have to justify in our own mind and before other men. That's how we hold on to them. We justify them. Question two, do I, find, do I find confession of sin difficult? We've talked about this as a church family. I mean, you know what? People in, our, in the neighborhoods around us thought, I go, boy, that church, that community Bible church, they're a broken people. They confess their sins to one another. I mean, they realize they're, instead of going, oh, they're hypocrites, you know? And that's what most of our neighbors think about the church. They think we're hypocrites. That'll be thinking about us as people who, we're broken. We're broken. We find it, we find it so hard to confess our sins to one another. So do I find it hard to confess my sin or do I see confession of sin as a way to glorify Christ? That's the way we should see that opportunity. I ought to run to the opportunity to confess my sin to my brother or my sister who I've offended because it makes very little of me and very much of God and what he's done in the person of Christ. Amen? Now, twisting Scripture to justify oneself before men is always a response of one who walks in darkness. And remember, what's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Our position should always be one of confession and never one of self-justification. The sinful heart, here's the main principle again, the sinful heart declares itself righteous through the willful corruption of God's word and the willful disobedience of the truths of God's word. But I want to close with this. The regenerate heart is declared righteous by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Amen? And so it should find joyful expression in how we treat one another. In all that we do, it should find joyful expression and obedience to the unchanging Word of God. Let me close with, a, with an illustration, a personal illustration. My mom's mom, my grandmother, but just so you know, on my mom's side, my grandmother, her husband divorced her when my mom was 12 years old. So, I don't know, many years ago. I'm, my grandmother died when she was 100. It was almost her 101st birthday when she passed away. But her husband, my grandfather, divorced her when my mom, my mother, was 12 years old. But my grandmother is the most vivid illustration in my mind of unconditional love and unmerited forgiveness. She never remarried. And I never once heard her say anything derogatory about my grandfather. Never once. He left her for another woman. She had every reason to be bitter, to be angry. You know what she did? You know what my memory is? On Thanksgiving, she invited 
my grandfather and his wife, new wife or second wife, to Thanksgiving, and she served them. She put him at a place of honor at the table, and she served them in her home. Now, I can't remember many words of my grandmother. A couple of silly things like, you know, off like a dirty shirt. I mean, something, I, I remember some something. I can't remember anything profound that my grandmother said. I'll tell you what I can remember is a woman who lived her life illustrating to me what unconditional love and forgiveness look like. To the end, a hundred years old. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes publicly of all that I have. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray.